Hey, um, uh, now I, don't, I don't often bring attention to this, but I, I will tell you as a former student minister for many, many, many years, it's, it does mark good to see the students standing and kind of challenging us from behind uh, when it comes to worship. Thank you, students, for uh, leading us as um, uh, in your willing to worship the Lord um, outwardly. <clears throat> we got to jump straight into 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, we don't have a minute to spare. <clears throat> verse Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 19 in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Everybody good with that? Okay, moving on. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. What is this? Where did this come from? We're right in the middle of a, a passage, and all of a sudden, um, it feels like the patron saint of all of us ADHD children everywhere, Peter, just has a moment, doesn't it? Like, he saw a couple of squirrels. It reminded him that Noah had two squirrels on the ark. So then he starts talking about the ark and the spirits from that time. Um, I totally get that. Is that what's going on here? Well, you know, we start in the middle of a sentence, and that doesn't seem smart. All you good Bible scholars here today, um, you don't start in the middle of a sentence. That's not a good idea. So let's go back a verse, 318. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, be, he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Well, that's good. Okay. Sherrod covered that brilliantly last week. If, if, uh, if you've not heard it, I recommend you go back and listen to Chris Sherrod unpack essentially what is one of those verses in the Bible that the entire gospel is wrapped up in one verse. And uh, he did a great job of, of bringing that to life for us last week. Um, the gospel is real and powerful and active, and I pray that it is real and powerful and active in your life. Um, the righteous suffered and died for the unrighteous. They faced, he faced the cost and paid it. He took the sting of death unto himself. He took to the just wrath of a just God against sin, and he drank it down. And though dead in the flesh, he was made alive in the Spirit. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that could be true of us as well? Only those of us who truly have experienced what it means to be sick and broken and addicted, and frustrated, and at times experiencing emptiness and despair or helplessness can fully appreciate what Jesus Christ has done by being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the Spirit. I hope that you at one point counted yourself among the sick and the lost, since that's who Jesus came to save. And I hope now you're able to count yourself among the found and the living. If you aren't broken, we can train you. All right, but this sentence starts with four. Another sentence that starts with four, which demands us to look back further. So that's a good Bible scholar says, wait a minute, you can't start with the word four. It's there for some reason. So we'll go back to 317, which of course is no help because it begins four. It is better to suffer for doing good that it should be God's will than doing evil. Another theme of the whole book, suffering is inevitable for the follower of Jesus Christ. Make it count. Suffer for the right things. So we go back even further. I'm going to go all the way back to 314. Now, this is a letter, which means you should actually, you could go all the way back to verse 1, every single verse you study, and read all the way up to that point. If you're ever one of those people who lived in a, in a place different than your loved one, than your fiance, than your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and they ever sent you a letter, 
I, I feel confident you didn't pick it up and read the first two sentences and then put it down. And then a few days later, you went and read the next two sentences. And then after reading those or really thinking that through, you put it down again. That would have been a really weird way to read that. And yet that's exactly how we're studying a letter because as you're going to see, I'm just going to read just less, I mean, less than a dozen verses and already our brains kind of fuzz out. And so we, we focus on teaching little sections at a time, hopefully each one being a new puzzle piece that suddenly fits together into something more grand. But I'm going to start in verse 14 and see if you can see the line of reasoning here. <clears throat> Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good that it should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So in other words, we're still continuing to unpack the overall themes of this letter that Peter has written to believers in hiding around the world, starting with this, look at what God has done. Now, think about what that means for you. And finally, how are we going to live that out? See, in the end, a lot of this is really going to come down to Christ identifying with us and us identifying with Christ. In an era where identification has become something of its own religion, us recognizing that here we are being called to identify with the one who is willing to identify with us, that is Jesus Christ himself. We identify with his sacrifice, with his calling, with his ministry, with his glory, with his gospel, and yes, as chapter 4 is about to unpack, with his suffering. We identify with all of these. <clears throat> this is who he is. Chris's point, Chris Sherrod's point last week about Peter opposing Jesus' suffering was so profoundly made that, that Peter hated that. He hated the thought of Jesus' suffering. He stood against Jesus' suffering. And now here we have a book that is essentially entirely Peter unpacking the value and purpose, significance, and inevitability of Jesus' suffering. He finally picked up on this. He can be taught. With that Rosetta Stone in place, we can come back to the passage and make some sense of it, this idea of suffering. This idea that, that we had sin, that we were fleshly, that we were incompetent and incapable, that we were helpless and hopeless. So Jesus came and identified with us. He came to experience life as a human, to live as one of us. He came and identified with us. Not going into a lot of detail, but it's one of those fascinating things that when we go to Israel, people always expect to have this deeply spiritual experience, and some people do. The experience, I guarantee you, is a deeply physical experience. It isn't that we go to Jerusalem, that we go to Israel to experience heaven. It's that we go to Israel to experience that heaven came here, that Jesus came near to us. He came to live 
and slum in the dirt and in the stone and in the dust. And that that's what we realize. He actually did that. He really came here. He really walked on these steps. This is a real thing. It's a powerful experience. The idea that he came to identify with us, even in our frailty and our sin. We have a really fun example of that that's happened recently. Um, some of you may have noticed John Redfern's uh, new haircut. Um, where his head's all just buzzed all the way over. You may be like, that's, a, that's an interesting new look for John, right? Well, here's what happened. One of John's sons, Cade, Cade decided the other day that what would be a really fun idea would be to go ahead and give himself a haircut, right? Just to help everybody out. I'm sure that's what he was thinking. He was like, listen, listen, it costs money to get my haircut. I'm just going to go ahead and just skip the middleman, take care of this myself, save everybody some money. Um, I, I know this will be a shock to you, but he didn't do a great job. It, it, it wasn't... It wasn't quite the professional quality that they were looking for. So they just, they just buzzed Cade's head. So that's why you get this idea of identification, right? Is that the father, though the father is not the one who sinned, he is the one who helps pay the price. He identifies with his son in the sin of the son, and they get to experience the grace of that together. It's a beautiful picture God is willing, we find out in this passage, and we found out in this book, God is willing to send messengers to suffer. He's willing to do that. He sent Noah, and Noah suffered. He sent Jesus, and Jesus suffered, and He sends us, and the plan is for us to suffer. Are we willing to identify with Him in regards to this? As we unpack this passage, no, we're starting off with a tough passage, one of the tougher passages in the New Testament. Even Martin Luther himself, the founder of the Reformation, expressed his confusion about this passage. He says, quote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. But we actually have some advantages over Martin Luther. I don't mean that to sound arrogant, but it's true. We have better copies of the Bible than he had. We have a much deeper understanding of Jewish thought than he did. He was teaching theology and understanding Scripture at a time when most of Jewish thought had been, had been pulled out. Anti-Semitism had led to the pulling out of understanding the Jewish way of thinking when looking at Scripture. And now for the last 100, 150 years, we've begun to reinsert and re-understand. Of course, it's ridiculous that we would try to understand Jesus Christ as a Roman or as a Greek or worse, as, a, as an Englishman or an American, which is what we often do with it. We, we go to, uh, one of the places we go to sometimes in Bethlehem is, is we go down into where they say Jesus was born. There's a silver star on the floor, and they actually say, like, right, that, right there. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't buy that. But somewhere in Bethlehem, right? Okay, we'll go with that. But they have these beautiful, these beautiful medieval-era paintings on the wall there that are all being ruined by the smoke. But, but they're all these, these really fun paintings, of medieval paintings of Jesus Christ as a newborn and as an infant. And in every one of them, he is a redhead. In every one of them. Which I get. I mean, I get that. I understand the inclination, but, but that's not very accurate, right? That's a misunderstanding. That's taking Jesus out of his Jewish context. My guess is he looked pretty Jewish, um, not probably much like a, a redheaded Irishman. And so he probably looked more like a Jew. So we have this idea of, of understanding Jesus in his lens, and we are better at that now than Martin Luther was. How's that for really uh, a blessing that we get to live in this era of understanding some of this stuff? So when we look at this passage, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison <coughs> because they formerly did not obey when God's patience weighed in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. <clears throat> John Piper, in his attempt to unpack this passage, 
starts with a really helpful reminder. When we're looking at a difficult passage, it's important that we start with what we do know about the passage, not what we don't know. So we start by examining what we're seeing here. One thing we know for sure in the midst of Noah, ark, spirits, prisons, etc., here's what we do know. We see that Christ is teaching here. That Christ is teaching, He is proclaiming, is actually the word here, He's proclaiming something in the Spirit. And it's connected to Noah. So here's what we know for sure. Noah was a prophet of God, and he spoke through the Spirit of Christ. We know that. We can see a reference to that and others in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. So we've already looked at this passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Do we have that one? 1 Peter 1. There we go. 1 Peter 1, uh, 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, notice, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, the prophets of old, hundreds of years, thousands of years before the time Jesus walked on earth, were prophesying through the Spirit of Christ. Noah would be one of those. So we know this, Noah was speaking through the Spirit of Christ when he taught, when he prophesied. The same Spirit was in Noah, the same Spirit was in Jesus Christ. The proclamation of Jesus' victory has been proclaimed by prophets, including Noah, throughout all time in the Spirit of Christ. That is clearly here in this passage. That's what we know is in this passage. So it kind of becomes, then, who? Who is the who in this passage? Or maybe... For those of you who are English wonks, to, to whom? I don't even know if I'm using that correctly. No, not really concerned about it. The, um, the, uh, the, this is a, is, who is Peter talking about? Who is receiving this proclamation? Who is that? <clears throat> One theory, a common theory, and basically it comes down to, <clears throat> there's dozens, as you can imagine, of theories, but they come down to kind of two. One is that they're good people. They're good spirits. They're Old Testament saints who had died but were or are stuck in a position of disobedience. They were early Christians, that something had happened to them, early followers of Jesus from the time that Jesus lived or until another time, or, or something else like that. This idea is that what Jesus is doing here is that Jesus went and set captives free at some place in this whole experience. That Jesus went back, proclaimed his victory to people needing to be set free of a prison experience. Now, that's not unbiblical, a concept, a con the concept that Jesus sets captives free. In Ephesians 4, for example, it talks about, the, the Paul talks about how Jesus ascended, and then he says, what does it mean that he ascended unless he also descended? Well, if he descended to set captives free and to bring captives, to bring um, victorious, to bring the victories, the spoils of the war that he has won, that's what he's talking about. Now, I don't see that in this passage. Uh, it's not that that falls outside the character of God, the idea that God would do that, that God would set captives free, that God would reach somehow into the spiritual realm in a way we don't understand and set captives free. It's not unbiblical and certainly not outside the character of God. The Bible just doesn't unpack that idea. And if you're not careful, you're going to run into this, this false notion that somehow we have confidence that people who have died get another shot at the gospel. Now, of course, God can do that if He wants to. This is God we're talking about. He can show mercy on whom He wants to have mercy and, and condemn whom He will condemn. But we don't need to have any confidence that that's the case. 
the overarching biblical picture is it is destined for everyone to die once and then face judgment. That's the biblical picture. So we don't want to get a false, a false sense of like, oh, listen, I don't have to reach out and risk sharing the gospel. They'll get another chance. There's no such guarantee. No, instead, I think this is not, not, these aren't good spirits. These are evil spirits. I think that's what's being talked about here. One, the term that's used here is almost always evil spirits in the Bible, maybe with one exception. <clears throat> so, and this, this, this section itself seems to lend itself towards the idea of Jesus proclaiming himself over rebellious spirits. And that's what I think makes sense. Christ's proclamation, which is the third option, Christ's proclamation of victory here is over spiritual beings, evil spiritual beings who have been imprisoned, been in prison since the time of Noah. Now, what could he possibly be talking about when it comes to that? I want to explain something real quickly, again, back to this Jewish idea, understanding the Jewish way of thinking. If I said, not Scripture, so anything but Scripture, who is an, an author that if you go hear an evangelical preacher preach, and you hear him talk, that they're going to probably quote or look to multiple times in a period of a few years, and, and you're going to realize they, they, they see this person in high regard. They see this. Who is someone who's, I mean, almost Scripture? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, C.S. Lewis is the most common answer you get in today's world, right? And especially in the evangelical world. There's lots of other great ones. But if you went back and listened to the last year of my preaching, and you had no idea who C.S. Lewis was, and you had no frame of reference for C.S. Lewis and his writings, you'd be confused a lot. You'd be going like, who is he talking about here? That's really nuts. I make references to C.S. Lewis that you don't even know I'm making. I make references to C.S. Lewis that I don't even know that I'm making. I've been so influenced by his thinking and his writing that he he's influences us all the time. One of the influences for the first century writers like that is a book as a series of books called the Books of Enoch. The Books of Enoch were a common, they were a common piece of material literature that the first century Christians read and deferred to as significant, not scriptural, significant. There was insight there that they liked to learn from and gain information from. No one thought that these were actually the writings of the grandson of Cain. No one thought that. These are, these are not even necessarily meant to be historical in nature, but they're teaching something that's going on, maybe with historical reference. First Enoch, for example, along with a few other texts from the Second Temple period, interpreted this idea that you see in Genesis 6 of the sons of God, that those are evil spirits who have rebelled against God. When you go all the way back to Genesis 6, I'm about to reference it with more detail, but this is when you have the sons of God, and they, the sons of God decide to come down and make babies with the daughters of men. It's a weird passage, but it's a clearly the, 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 the writers of Enoch thought, thought of those as spiritual beings in rebellion. This large crowd of angelic creatures, angelic rebels called the Watchers, conspired to leave heaven in order to marry human women on the earth. Here's what it says. This is from 1 Enoch chapter 6. It came to pass when the sons of men, again, this is not Scripture. It's clarifying. It's not Scripture. It's not going to be on the screen either. It came to pass when the sons of men had multiplied in those days, beautiful and comely daughters were born to them. And the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives for ourselves from the daughters of men of earth, and let us beget children for ourselves. Now, this was in disobedience to Almighty God. This is an act of rebellion. These are spiritual creatures rebelling against Almighty God. The narrative goes on to describe how the watchers taught humans forbidden things. How the children of the watchers became giants. They were abusing, destroying, and devouring, literally devouring humans. Their violence and evil was stunning, 
and vicious, according to First Enoch. The four archangels in heaven raise a complaint to God about the violence the watcher's offspring had brought upon the earth. In response, God sends one archangel to inform Noah, start building an ark. He then has sent another one. Another one, Raphael, is sent to imprison the leader of the watchers. Gabriel is sent to begin war against the giant offspring. Michael is sent to pronounce judgment over all of the watchers. You'll find this in 1 Enoch chapters 9 through 11. Enoch is then enlisted by God in the passage. Enoch, righteous scribe, go and declare to the watchers of heaven who forsook the high heavens, the sanctuary of their eternal station, and defiled themselves with human women. And Enoch, go say to their leader, you will have no peace. A severe sentence has gone forth against you to put you in bonds, in prison. The rebel spirits then ask Enoch to petition God on their behalf, which he does, and God gives an answer to send back to these rebellious spirits. Here's God's answer. From henceforth you shall not ascend into heaven until all of eternity. And in chains of the earth the decree has gone forth to bind you for all of the days of the world. This is something that Peter would have been aware of and connected to as he's teaching through this. The insight that he has. He writes again about it in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is Scripture. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, essentially He's not going to spare unbelievers now either. Now we're going to do Second Peter, Lord willing, next, at some point next year, so I don't want to unpack this verse any more than this, but we'll come back to it. I think that Jesus in the Spirit, what's being described here in 1 Peter is that Jesus in the Spirit proclaimed His victory to these rebellious spirits who have been in bondage from the time of Noah. From the time of their declaration of rebellion against God, God defeats them. He shuts them down. They are imprisoned by the archangels. These horror show monsters of old, fallen and rebellious spirits that embraced their lusts and became predators preying on humanity. And God brought it all to, the end, all to an end with a flood. It's a new way of understanding the flood, isn't it? This part doesn't go in the mobiles we put in the babies' rooms. We, we leave this part out. Just, just the animals. Squirrels especially. God will bring an end to it with a flood. Listen, this is not new. This is this idea that God saves people through the waters. That's not new. Noah was saved through the flood. Moses was saved through the sea. Joshua was saved through the Jordan. This isn't a strange thing. This is a theme we th see all through Scripture. The theme that we have gotten wrong all these years very often, if you are like me, when you study the story of Noah, you read the story of Noah like this, and God destroyed humanity through the flood. Did God destroy humanity in the flood? No, He saved humanity with the flood. It was an act of salvation for God to send the flood to wash the evil and horror off the surface of civilization so that all was left were people willing to start over again in deference and worship of Him, with righteousness and justice as their guide. That's what we're looking at. He saved us through the flood. His wrath at sin gave us a fresh start without supernaturally sprawling predators all around. Peter connects the salvation of Noah's family through the flood to the salvation that comes through baptism. There's not much of an obvious connection there, except maybe there is now for you. It is the salvation through water once again. In fact, a lot of ways, floods and baptisms are opposites. God is rescuing people through the water, saving people through the water. It's a sobering reminder. Listen up. It's a sobering reminder for we who face spiritual enemies of our age. Whoever the spiritual enemies of our age are, 
It's fascinating to me to watch Christians on a regular basis panic, panic, when the world starts doing foolish, immoral, or ungodly things, as if that's surprising to us in any way. We look around and say, murder rates are up for the first time, and more than ever in history, by the way, in the United States, murder rates went up last year. The highest increase we've ever seen. And as Christians, we say, I appeal to God. I look to Him in this. Good thing I wasn't trusting in humans, or I'd be really disappointed today. Good thing I wasn't trusting in humans to lead us out of these types of things. The main clarity comes from this. Even in the midst of a fallen and broken world led by evil spirits, 1 John 4.4 says this. Little children. Incidentally, I love when one of the Bible writers starts with the phrase, little children. I don't feel patronized, patronized to it. I feel like, okay, I'm going to understand this verse. I've got a shot at this one, right? Little children, you are from God, and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If this was what the first century church could be comforted with, I think we can accept it. This passage is going to end with the concept of Jesus as the ultimate authority. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 3, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, forced into subjection. His actions are so strongly linked to his authority. Matthew 28, 18. Are the Great Commission, every church's commission statement. We may change it, we may add little words. Every, every church, it's essentially just the mission, this, this is our mission statement. Again, changing some words around one or another. But Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is not merely I who am the authority and giving you an instruction. Although some need to hear that too, this is you don't need to fear death because I have all the authority even over death. Peter is linking the message and suffering of Noah to the power and patience of God to make things right in total victory. The message and suffering and power of Jesus to the message and suffering of us. This is identification. 21, baptism, which corresponds, which is identified, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism, look, you want to know what baptism is? It's defined right here for you. Baptism is the appeal to God for a good conscience. It's a declaration. It's a purification of all that we are. It's God who we're looking to. Notice, in baptism, we do not appeal to the water. We're not appealing to the water in baptism. We are appealing to God in the baptism. It isn't the baptism itself that purifies us. It's not the water that purifies us. That would be wrong. Hebrew, we appeal instead to God. Hebrews 9, 14 points out, For the blood of goats and bulls, 13 and 14, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Purify our conscience, His blood. Hebrews 10.22, which we just read a minute ago, let us draw near to a true, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Conscience, this idea of a clear conscience, the, who we are, the way we think, what we are, our internal person being walked away from the, and becoming empty of guilt and personal agenda and failure. The, the biblical idea here, the Greek here, a, a decision, a choosing of a side, it reflects a pledge, <coughs> a consummation, a declaration. You're saying, I'm like Jesus. Jesus makes me like Him. I'm on His team. I am defeated in my own life. I've taken on a new master, a new Lord. I've been with Him. This is the, this is the ambition of every Christian, what we see in Acts 4.13. When the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished because they saw they were such great dudes, right? Can we get that one on the screen? Acts 4.13. We saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. I guess not. Isn't that the goal of all of us? To recognize that we had been with Jesus? Isn't that the goal? Does someone hang out with us and go, hey, hey, have you been with Jesus? I think you've been hanging out with Jesus. Here's what I connect it to. This is the little kid talking to the coach or dad. Pick, pick me, pick me, pick me. Please pick me. Oh, 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 pick me. Make me like yours. I want to be like you. I can't wait to show everybody that I'm yours. I'm so proud to be here with you. This is so exciting. I get to be like you. I get to be one of you. You picked me. I pick you. This is awesome. I think, I think the idea is we're identifying with him. We're like the, the little kid in our own little seat with our own little horn and our own little steering wheel in the passenger seat. Like I'm, I'm, just like, I'm just like Dad. I'm driving just like Dad. See me? I'm just like him. That's what baptism is. It's a proclamation of saying, no, no, I, he picked me. Hey, he picked me. That's the idea. I, I want to express that. I want to show that. I'm forsaking all others. There's a lot of wedding language that goes into baptism for a reason. We, we, are, we're, we are the bride of Christ. We're, we're saying, every, so every year we go to Israel, and we go to Magdala, every year that we go to Israel, we go to Magdala, um, Deborah Harder there teaches um, about the wedding mikvah to the women. She pulls the women aside because it can get pretty intense. <clears throat> but teaching about the wedding mikvah. And the wedding, so the mikvah bath is where baptism comes from. The mikvah bath, the Jewish people, they had these baths. And so if there were numerous times in, in normal life that you would need to go through the mikvah bath. Every time you went on the Temple Mount, for example, you had to take off all your clothes and you went down into this mikvah bath and you, you rinsed off and came out and they put a white robe on you to go up onto the Temple Mount so that you had this, this physical representation of the purification that was happening inside of you. This physical picture of what was going on inside. The, the wedding mikvah, the, the, the bride mikvah, her friends would gather around with her um, to prepare her to go meet with her new husband exposing every part of her to the water of the mikvah to prepare her for her groom. Throughout Jewish history, it's represented the symbolic purification. All around Jerusalem especially, they dig 10 feet and they find another mikvah bath. They are everywhere, hundreds of them all over the place. This was vital to their faith. It's a physical expression of a spiritual reality. I am purified for my God in all my heart, and all my soul, and all my strength. And the physical experience, here it is, the physical experience of that spiritual truth is baptism. We can start running the baptism videos. I don't know if it's, there we go. 
This is the testimony that you're missing out. These are today's um, baptisms. I want you to hear this. This is, the ba- this is the testimony you're missing out on by not being baptized. Of course, you can go to heaven without being baptized. Baptism itself is not what saves you. Missing out on baptism is like newlyweds missing out on consummating their marriage on their wedding night. It makes no sense. Why would you do that? That's, you're, you're missing something very important. You're missing what's going on in a wedding. What's going on on the honeymoon night is the physical expression of the spiritual truth of two becoming one. Baptism is like that. This is my jersey. This is the team I'm on. I'm one of the purified ones. Baptism marks us. It declares us for a team. So let me challenge you. Are you afraid of crowds? Is that what keeps you from being baptized? Are you afraid of bringing in front of people? Are you afraid of what people might think? What your family might think? You're embarrassed that you've been a Christian for decades, but you've never done it? Is that what's holding you back? I want to encourage you to come forward to express your need to obey God and being baptized as a believer. You were baptized as a child? Awesome. Good for you. That is the baptism of connection to the church. It is not a baptism of conversion. They're two different things. One doesn't cancel out the other one. The baptism, the profession, the explanation, the proclamation with Jesus who went to the prison to proclaim his victory over the souls, over those spirits, will we be willing to, would we be willing to walk up front of a stage, a walk into a baptismal in order to do the same thing? Are we willing to proclaim which side we're on, what team we play for? What price are we willing to pay? This is going to come up a lot, guys, in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, you can stop the videos now. In Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to hear. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm not Ephesians. First Peter chapter 4 is largely going to be about this question. What price are we willing to pay? What is it going to take to purchase us from Christ? What is the price that they say, you've got to pay this, and you go, okay, well, I'll just, I'd, rather just, I'd rather just walk away from Christ than pay that price. Please tell me that your price for being identified with Christ isn't, I just don't like being in front of people. If you don't want to declare your team that you're one of the purified ones, life's going to get tough. Baptism marks us. Jesus went to the spirits in prison since Noah to proclaim his victory. Can we walk even to a baptismal to proclaim it to our friends? This is the reason that your hope is within you. Hear me. Baptism in front of a crowd of people who are cheering for you is the first step to being prepared to face a crowd of people who are jeering you. That's pretty good, isn't it? I like that. Baptism in front of a crowd of people who are cheering you is the first step to being prepared to face a crowd of people who are jeering you. Identifying with Him in suffering and death starts with identifying with Him in the symbol of His death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is to be buried with Christ in death and resurrected to walk in the newness of life. This is what we've been called to. Let me challenge you, encourage you. If you've never followed Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've never followed Him in this baptism, I am fascinated to hear what the price is that you're not willing to pay. It will only cost you more later. It's time to identify with Him even in this. I am one of these. I'm with Him and I can talk about it. I'm ready. I'm getting ready. I'm getting prepared to suffer for it. This is an easy first step. I want to encourage you with. Stand with me if you will.
I want you to take the time. If you need to come in a moment and, and come up here and pray, if you need to come draw a line in the sand and declare like, you know what? I'm one of those, never been baptized. It's time. Great. Come do it while you've got the courage to do it. Whatever that is. If you have something else you need to come and pray about up here, you're welcome to do that here or over in the corner with somebody. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to become a part of this dysfunctional family, we'd love to invite you to do this. This isn't, this isn't a sermon from a Baptist. This is just straight from Peter. So I want to encourage and challenge you with that, that we would live this out. I want to pray for strength for all of us to live out this, this, this life of, uh, of proclaimed change. Father, we're so grateful for the power of your word, and I pray your heart and your spirit to strengthen the limbs and the mind and the strength of anyone here who doesn't know you as their, as their Savior, who's never put their faith in you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. For anyone who has accepted that free gift, who has seen that and who's been picked and chosen, adopted, renamed, purchased, sealed by you. I pray, Lord, today would be the day that they would be willing to step up in a new way and proclaim that through baptism. The appeal to you for the good thing. Father, I thank you that we have that opportunity, that you've, you sent your son to purchase that price for us, to identify with us, and now we get to identify with him. And this simple symbol to identify with Him, what a powerful thing. You were thinking ahead when you created that, thinking about us. And I thank you for the opportunity to do that in your Son's name. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Respond as the Spirit leads.